podcast, I have a very special guest. His name is Alexander D. Great, who was born in Trinidad and grew up in London. He is a professional musician and composer for more than 30 years, and he divides his time between live performance, running his small record label and doing poetry and calypso workshops in schools and colleges. He also works with elder groups suffering from memory issues as well, because he, in his family history, he's had a very close family member suffering, I believe, from Alzheimer's. Welcome, Alexander. Great to have you. Thank you very much. Lovely to see you, Sylvia. So what is your earliest memory of music? Because you have a very unique style. It's a calypso style, which in my world, we don't hear too much about that. So that's right. Yeah. So tell us more about your musical history in that. Okay. well, I was born in Trinidad and Tobago. And the reason I was born there was that my parents, my father was from Germany. He was a German Jewish um, refugee, if you like, at the age of 15. But his mother was, she wasn't Jewish, she was German and Swedish, so he had that mix. And he was put on a boat to England by my very intelligent, clever grandmother, who realised that it was all up for, because my grandfather uh, had died under duress during the late 1930s, just before the war started. So my dad went to England first at 15, and at 16 he was shipped off to Canada. My mother completely separately, was born in Trinidad, slightly older than my dad, and she went to college in Toronto because she had a favourite uncle, Uncle Dave, after whom I'm named, who told her she should study um, somewhere, not just become a housewife and a mum back in Trinidad, but come and study and do something, and why not use Toronto? So they met there, my parents met there, and they got married there whilst they were at college, but when my mother fell pregnant with me, she said, I want my child born in Trinidad. So I was born there. So the earliest music I would have heard would have been the local music. It was a mix, really. It would have been Calypso, but also there would have been folk songs. My dad loved folk songs. and He was a great folk singer um, in his own way and played a bit of harmonica and so on. And mum was into sort of Sinatra. And, well, anything really. Ella Fitzgerald, certainly. Those kind of the 40s and early 50s, that kind of um, swing music and all of that. Now... That's interesting because my mum was also an extremely good singer, both of jazz and opera. She had a wonderful soprano voice. And she, there are five of us in my family. She had five, they had five children. Three of us became professional musicians. Four of us actually did music at a certain point, up to a certain point. And it's there in the family. And um, I also, there's a, another aunt and an uncle. Again, very, very good singers, very musical who've now all passed away. So music was always there. And as I say, the earliest music I would have heard would have been a mix of Trinidad and the sort of 40s or 50s swing stuff. Now, at the age of three, my parents decided to go to Britain. So that would have been back in the early 1950s, very early part of the 1950s. And they came, as a lot of people did, because it was the rebuilding of Britain after the war. My mother was a teacher. My father became a librarian and worked in the British Library, or what was then the British Museum, the reading room. Um, but at the time, he was still getting his um, credentials as a librarian, so he worked part-time and so on. And I do remember being in a room in a house where there were about half a dozen families, and each family lived in a room. And the house was owned by an Irish couple, which tells you a great deal because... A couple of the families were Caribbean. I think there were a couple of Indian families in there, certainly a couple of Irish ones, with either one or two kids each. And um, it was hard to find accommodation for anybody with even a touch of colour, except among the Irish community with whom the Caribbeans and others felt an affinity. And the affinity was they'd all been mistreated (laughs) by the English. That's the affinity. Well, you like it or not, it's just one of those it's, things. It's, it's, not yeah. all of the English, not all of them, because there were some great friendships grew up between British people and Caribbeans, Africans, Indians, whatever. And it was, interestingly, among the um, ordinary working class and maybe a little bit of the middle class people, because once they had seen how things were 
and that these people were very similar, with similar wants, with similar needs, with similar cares. Uh, relationships, relationships were formed, particularly in factory work, in the transport industry, certainly in um, the NHS. I had three aunts and four niece, uh, poor um, cousins, female, who came from the Caribbean to do nursing here. Because my mum was one of ten children and all but one aunt had between three and six kids. So there's a lot of us of my generation, you see. And as a consequence, um, life was a mixture of... Well, people said, did you experience much racism? Yes, there was racism about, but there was also this cushion of huge family security and extended family security. And we found it amongst other people who just got on with us. So I never experienced any real um, racism from people who became my friends, although it was there at school at times and it was there even in, in adulthood here and there, but very rarely. What made a difference, though, and this is a great story. My mother, when the, I had twin brother and sister come along when I was four, just over four years of age. Now, when they came along, it meant that there were now there was a couch in the room which folded into a bed in the night i had a concertina canvas bed which folded up into a little coffee table and now there was a cot with the twins in it paul and betty and mum decided we had to get out and get our own thing together so my father used to do extra work in the post office at christmas time for two years running so i would have been six the first year and seven the second year and but as i say paul and betty would have been well, in the first couple of years then. And Dad came home the second year and he said, has anybody come from the post office? Because you do seven or eight weeks of delivering letters, you know, running up to Christmas. No, said Mum. She told a lie, but a good lie. She had found, she opened the letter with the cheque in it or whatever the remuneration was, the remuneration was, and she'd gone to see a lawyer because back in those days there weren't very many sort of estate agents as a company. You went and saw somebody who knew about houses. She went to see a lawyer and said, I want to put the deposit on a house. And to cut to the chase, they used, it was about 120 quid or something like that in those days. They used it as a deposit on a four-bedroom house with sitting tenants downstairs. And Very it took clever. us five years to get rid of these sitting tenants who loathed us. And what they loathed most of all about my mum, who was black, was that she was a teacher who refused to give up her work. She loved her work. So she employed au pairs to look after her kids oh, as I they see. were born. I see. So Paul and Betty had a German um, lady called Edith. Edith. Then when um, Mark came along, we had Margarita, who came from Spain. And then when Sarah came along, when I was nearly 10, or I was 10, and I was 10 by then, we had Doey from Switzerland. And <laughs> the people downstairs could not abide the idea that a black woman could employ a European au pair girl to look after her kids. It just didn't make sense. It was absolute anathema to them. And now looking back, I laugh with glee when I think of it, but it was kind of tough at the time because they really weren't that, that nice. But my mother showed such incredible foresight that's what i was i was going to say as well that she she sounds like such a strong personality and very independent thinking wise he was and my dad bless him was a very gentle nature loving man he was never happier than with his nose in a book about birds of the world or the galapagos islands or something or watching something with david attenborough and he loved nature he liked to go took us all youth hosting and things like that he was a very quiet man and he always um What's the word? He kind of not gave way to my mum, but mum ran things. And I'm going to say this, controversial as it might sound, and I hope your listeners don't mind. If more men listened to their wives, there would be less aggravation in this world. Because yeah. I've got the knowledge of how to do things right in life. They, 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 they have the babies and that bond is there and they they know what's right for the community and the family and not all men but some men get above themselves and think they are you know god's gift and whatever and so they don't listen and it leads to conflict and unnecessary yeah um, suffering by it people does. 
And I'll tell you, we, uh, we had the most fantastic... We've never been wealthy in our lives. None of us has. But we had the most fantastic, wonderful family upbringing with a very, very extended family. Lots of people came over again to study or to or to get, as I say, there's, there's these seven, three aunts, four cousins. Wow, that's a big family. That's, that's big. And of course, to get back to your original question, they always had to bring records. <laughs> that was the ticket. If you're coming so, to stay by us, bring the latest steel pan record or bring a, an album of Calypso's. So we were kind of, it wasn't, as I got older, it was less and less. But now and again, you know, we there was this was played. And music was played, classical music was played too, though. I was Don't just going wrong. to ask My you that father, about, about classical music. Did that come into was, your life? I it loved it. I couldn't. I, first of all, I fell madly in love with Beethoven because my father had a Toscanini recording, Toscanini being a top um, conductor at the time, recording of the Seventh Symphony, which is my favourite Beethoven symphony. And I heard that from very, quite young, you know, four or five years of age, um, something like that. And um, also, I went to visit my German grandmother a few times in the holidays, probably four times in the summer holidays. And a couple of times, my, my next brother, Paul, came with me. And they only played classical music, but I had an aunt and an uncle there as well, my father's younger siblings, who both played the piano. And they would have something called an Italian evening. And an Italian evening was when two or three friends or more would come round and they'd bring instruments, clarinet, violin and stuff. And then they'd sit around and play chamber music by Haydn and things like that. As well. Beautiful. And we, as the kids, were allowed to stay up as a special treat to listen and have some of the food. And they would drink wine yeah. and talk, whatever it was that big people talked mm. but the music was enchanting because it was live and in front of us mm. oh, and, makes and me, me, oh just, it makes so much difference let me tell you when it's live yeah it it's makes, fabulous oh it's fabulous so I, had, I had it from all sides and then uh, another part of, of the another part of the equation was my father again my parents had friends wonderful friends um from all sorts particularly um caribbean ones but also english ones and there was an irish guy called terry masterson who interestingly enough came from in Inniskillen, where my, and this is, this, is, this is another add to the story, my Trinidadian mother is also very mixed. Yes, she's African, but she's got French and Irish. And her name, her, oh, my grandmother's name was Devonish. And Devonish is a corruption of Dov Inish, the place in Northern Ireland where, which is a stronghold for the um, anti-Cromwellians, um, anti if you like. And, um, and Kelly from Tipperary. So there were Irish, and also there's the French, de la Bastide. So again, I'm an earthling. I belong to this thing called planet Earth, lots and lots of bits and pieces. And I'm sure if everybody goes back 12 generations, they'll find they're all pretty mixed up anyway. Pretty much. So we're in a big So open. how did you transition going from primary into secondary school or the equivalent in England and then bring music into your life as a career, as well, a composer and so forth? This is, okay. So just transitioning very quickly. We, four of the five of us had piano lessons for a bit because mum insisted you're going to have piano lessons, which we did. Three of us became musicians. In the end. I didn't like practicing. I did piano lessons, I think until I was about 13. But the transition from primary to secondary was very strange because I went to a dreadful primary school. I went to quite a good primary school at first. Mum decided that I should go to a Catholic primary school because we were Catholics. Although my dad wasn't. My dad was... He would call himself an agnostic, which I think I would call myself now. One who does not know. Yes. So I don't really know, so I'm not going to make a judgment. But but mum was... A, and so she moved me to a school, and it was an appalling primary school. Very, very low standards. They liked to beat you all the time. I oh, got caned at cooking time. Desperate. And I was caned at the age of eight or nine years of age, too, mm -hmm. on the hands. So, um, and then I went to a secondary school, which was just fantastic. It was just wonderful. The best experience of my life was my mates at secondary school, but also he had the most wonderful headmaster, a guy called Rory Hands, who was a really forward-looking, humanitarian, humanist kind of a head. And rather than cane you, he'd make you sit down with a cup of tea and explain why it was you got out of line with something and see if you could do better next time. He was just unbelievable. Yeah. And there we had a great music teacher, uh, who encouraged us people to want to play music. Um, and I remember spending many lunchtimes, in fact, most lunchtimes in what was then year, say, year nine and ten, in the music store cupboard, trying out instruments with a mate of mine. My okay. friend. We'd sit there, we'd take out the bassoon and put it together and try and play it. 
and I, I, I learned a lot of the things. This is interesting because I learned how some instruments worked. And later on, as someone who writes, and I also can do arrangements, orchestral arrangements, I write for instruments. That was one of my earliest experiences is learning how instruments that's, work in a way. Yeah, that would really that, impact your learning. Of, did. Yeah, that's yeah. Why I'd, have been, I'd have been 13, 14 at that age. But stepping back a couple of years, my father's friend Terry from Inniskillen was a wonderful Irish folk singer. And he taught me my first two chords on the guitar because I wasn't taught the guitar. I bought a guitar from a jumble sale for 30 bob, about £1.50. Um, it was terrible state and everything. But um, Terry came around one day and mum said, he's got Sandy, I was called Sandy for short as a kid rather than Alexander. He's got a guitar. And he sh so he showed me the two chords, D and C, and how to sing She Moved Through the Fair which is one of the most beautiful songs ever written. It is actually, on this yeah. Earth. She went through my 
It's just a fabulous song. I still get emotional. It's the first song I ever learned that I could play singing it with the guitar. Mm -hmm. So it's lasted a long, long time with me. And that stayed with me. And then I had a friend at school who knew two other chords. I think he had G and E minor down. So between the two of us, we had four chords. And just at the time when we were getting interested, the Beatles hit big time. I heard Love Me Do and I thought it was mm, not bad, but I wasn't that interested. Once um, Please Please Me came out from me to you, I was hooked. We all were. This was a great band with great songs. And we found that we were able to kind of emulate some of the simpler songs on guitar. So we formed a band at school and that's how it all started. Chaz Cronk, bass player of the Straubs, someone who plays with Steve Hackett and has played with all sorts of people, um, was my best friend at school. We're still mates. We touch chat every now and again, though not often enough. Um, he made a great success of it. Um, he's, he tours America and Canada every year with a small cut-down acoustic version of the Straubs and so on. But it started, yeah, at school, secondary school in Chiswick with um, us doing Beatles songs and Stone songs. From there, we were encouraged to play at the school fete so we could bring our band in and play at the school fete. That was what they said. My, so let them play their stuff. You know, if, if it was, we had a great forward-looking music teacher who said, yeah, let them play the pop stuff. So I've never forgotten that. Um, but whilst at school, uh, we, and I would have been probably in year 10, going on for year 11, maybe, um, the animals released the House of the Rising Sun. So then the band said to me, well, you used to play the piano. We need to do stuff with organ in it. Get yourself an electric organ. So I did get a cheap electric organ for a bit. And um, Motown came in and Stax, Otis Redding, soul music. So the organ was perfect. And my mother, bless her, um, when I left school uh, after doing A-levels, which I did, I got one A-level and two O-level passes. I wasn't proud of it. But... My head was somewhere else. I wanted to be a musician. And Chaz left a year before. He didn't even do A-levels. He left and went to technical college and also wanted to do music. So my father was kind of concerned. Oh, you know, because he'd had a very much a struggle of a life and he'd made a lot of himself considering he was a refugee kid. And he wanted me to go to college. And mum said he let him get this out of his system. He'll either make something happen or he won't. And eventually you'll see what happens. So I just did any job I could to get money together to buy my equipment. My mum signed up for a Hammond organ. I paid the um, monthly payments religiously to the um, shop. And by the time I, I was 17 and a half, then getting on for 18, by the time I was 21, I was fairly self-sufficient as a gigging musician. Very I was, good. You know, it was, it was, it was never, you know, it was never rich, but it was enough to keep going and, various things first of all it were great gigs at some colleges because the colleges were all the rage then and i was in there at the right era so you'd find yourself um playing well we but first of all we backed a guy called jimmy thomas who was the lead singer of the ike and tina turner review everyone knows about tina but the proper review there were the iquettes the three girls of which pp arnold was one who stayed in britain after one of the tours but also they had a male singer. Obviously, they needed to have somebody for the girls who were going to the show. And Ike wasn't the greatest, you know, hunk of a man. He was a bit out there, as you know. And so Jimmy Thomas and Jimmy, they came and toured. And Jimmy Thomas stayed as well. And we became his backing band for a bit, playing soul music. So we got a nice taste of everything. So there I was. Uh, then we, we would find ourselves, well, the Jimmy Thomas band broke up because he stopped doing it. And we sort of went different ways. Chaz went into an outfit that was part of, well, it was Philip Good and Tate. And they used to support people like Elton John in the early days and go on tour with him. And I formed a duo with the drummer. And we wrote some songs together and became a duo. And we began to do some really nice gigs for College Entertainments, which was the agency, where we'd be we were just before the main band. And the reason we were just before the main band, we were no threat. We were an organ and drums duo. So we played with some big bands. When Love came over, this is Arthur Lee, who had a huge 60s hit with a thing called Alone Again Or, which is a massive hippie hit. Uh, and they'd, they'd do an all-nighter at Goldsmiths College. So there'd be um, 
there'd be Traffic, which is Stevie Winwood's band, Rare Bird, The Move, what have you, and then people like that, and um, and Love, and we'd be on just before Love when the hall was really filling up for the main band. So Fairport Convention, The Spinners, stuff like that. It was great. And then all of a sudden, we were dropped. We don't know why to this day. The agency just stopped doing it. And we found ourselves looking for work, so we began to do the West End nightclub scene. Now, that was fascinating because it's basically clip joints, which are nasty little strip bars and things where the band plays on. You do 9 o'clock till 3.30 in the morning with 4.15. Oh, 3.30 in breaks. the morning. Yes. Yeah. With, three, yeah. with three, three or four 15-minute breaks. But you learn a huge uh, variety of different types of music. So, you're, so you can either see it as, oh, you didn't make it in the rock and roll industry, so you're a failure. But if you do make it in the rock and roll industry, often that's all you play, rock and roll. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do. And unless, you stre- unless you're very, very good and you, you already are that good that you can stretch out. Or you learn to play all kinds of things. You learn to play samba and calypso and Latin stuff and maybe a bit of cool jazz and what have you. And you begin to expand your horizons. So that was great. And then in 1972, I became, I joined a, a, a meditation group, Divine Light, and there was a band formed and it was a fantastic 50 piece band. 50 pieces? went to the 50 pieces, five zero. Wow. And it was all volunteers. We were all like hungry to play. Uh, they, we, we were fed and watered. We found accommodation. We went to the States for about 10 months and did a couple of tours and we were set up there and I learned to arrange on the hoof and it's the most unique experience you can have because most of the time if you learn to arrange, you buy a book on arrangement. Well, in those days you did. You bought a book like Henry Mancini's Scores and Sounds, Sounds and Scores, which is a great book with a little cassette in the back with examples of his stuff. But no, you've got a band here with four trumpets three trombones, three French horns, tuba, five woodwind or reed instruments. This is all the saxes from soprano down to baritone sax and all of them double on flute, oboe, bassoon, something else. You've got 14 string players, three guitarists, a couple of bass players, stand-up bass, electric bass, two or three drummers, lots of percussionists, half dozen singers. It's a bit like a James Last orchestra, but instead of being sort of and the James Lars Orchestra's got some brilliant players in it. Don't get me wrong, yes. they're brilliant. Yeah, yeah. But the music's twee. It's very Euro kind of, ugh, not my cup of tea. Yeah. This band was much more like a Quincy Jones big band. It really kicked. It was sounds fun. it sounds and it. I made you know, all the saxophones and all. Yeah, I make I'd make mm. music. We had, we had it was very well structured. You had morning rehearsals by in small sections. So the trumpets would rehearse, the violins would rehearse. Then Afternoon was the larger section, so all the wood, all the wind would rehearse together, and all the strings, and maybe the singers and so on. Whatever. So I can see that your your knowledge from secondary school, messing around with the instruments, really yeah, comes yeah. into use here. That's right. Big time. But if you make yeah. a mistake, like I give you one example of the sort of thing that we it was just gold dust. Um, Jim, who was the head of the four trumpets, one we did a thing one night, and we're, we're always writing new songs. There are about fifteen of us writing songs for the band to do, and I, I was lucky; I had about half a dozen of my songs done. And um, we did a thing, a new song, and then Jim said, "Come to our sectional rehearsal tomorrow." I said, "Okay." I said, "What?" He says, "Ten o'clock. Come to ours." So I went along. He said, "Now you, there's got a line here." He said, "You've got four trumpets all playing the same line. Why?" I said, "I want it really loud." He said, "If you want to, if you want it loud." You need to give each trumpet a separate note. Four trumpets playing the same line is one and a half times as loud as one trumpet. Now, I never knew that. But this was a top trumpet player telling me something that was of scientific interest as well as sonal, you know, sound interest. Now, he said, yeah, if you want a nice close thing, either, you know, put a couple of the lines in. Or give us a nice stab with a set, you know, uh, you can play, say you're playing a C7 chord, you can play E. G, B flat and C close together. So the B flat and the C are only a tone apart. But if you go bang together, it makes a great sound. So I'm learning things about arranging from people who play. And that was a unique experience. And I not said, yes, do you want to come on this trip? 
there's no money in it, but you'll get to play with a big band. I just said, yes, gimme. And it was fantastic. You and just it adore music. It's Yeah, I'm just sensing from you that you love music. You love I it. do, I do. But I particularly love the fact that I don't know how many times that, that you get to play if you go to Berkeley, if you go to a great college. You know, if you go to Guildhall, the Royal College, of course you'll get to play. But this was a volunteer thing and we were writing the stuff. So I joined this foundation course for a couple of years, did A-level music, and then I thought, I still don't know enough about music. So I went to Dartington College of Arts in Devon and did a music degree, which I really, really enjoyed. It was a fabulous three years, learning about all kinds of things. I won't dwell on it, but I did some Indian music for two years. I played sitar, played a little bit of tabla. I really expanded my reach and understanding of music in general. So I come back. It sounds like you've such you've such a breadth of musical style but behind it's you. You're speaking there about Indian. Yeah. yeah, hunger is one thing. Like, but Indian yeah. music, calypso music coming in soon. Then you've got all the popular music. Then you've classical yeah. music. I mean, it's lack of all trades, though master of none. No, what it is? No, what it is? <laughs> I, I I was I did apply to the University of Surrey, University of Reading, which meant I could have stayed living in London. Um, and they were quite red brick in terms of, you know, they were straightforward. I, someone said to me, try Dartington. In fact, it was a it was a tutor who was on the degree course. Great guy with whom I remained friends with, still am. And he said, let me tell you something. Don't take it wrong. He said, you're an oddball. You need to go to a place where oddballs thrive. Dartington is a great place for oddballs. And it was thus. I found it to be that. Lots of people didn't do it. Anyway, and the other thing about Dartington was it had an Indian music course. It was the only course in, as far as I knew, in any college in Britain that was so thorough. And that was interesting. So I went there and I did that as well as all the other things. So I come back to London now in the early 80s. And um, I continue. I do did a PGCE, postgraduate certificate, so that I could do some teaching. I still do a little bit, but I never got into the idea, I, the idea of being a school teacher teaching didn't stay with me it wasn't enough because too regimental it was, maybe it just there wasn't enough room for me there wasn't enough time for me to do my songwriting stuff which is my passion so i did it for a little bit i did yeah it can reduce and also this is part of my slightly adventurous spirit which is why um, my wife is so wonderful in that she puts up with it i want to do things that i want to do that i like doing and i'm prepared to risk a lack of income or a lack of steady income in order to do those things. So if you, if you become head of a music department, yeah, you've got a regular wage, you get to your whatever, 65th birthday or 67th birthday and you retire and it all stops, but you don't need money anymore. And, you you know, it's where's no, it's I've done it the right way for me, which is do the writing now. And if you fail, you can never look back and say, well, I chose the safe bet and I wish I hadn't. You can say, I chose the dangerous route. I chose the dangerous route. I slipped and fell. My choice. But I haven't slipped and fallen yet. I've just managed to cling on. And it's been a heck of a lot of fun doing it. So then I, I, I basically through the 80s and 90s, I got lucky. I began to work for a couple of band leaders who do covers. You know, it's a covers band and you do. But the lifestyle is not that bad. And you meet some great musicians. These guys that play. Uh, but, I mean... You know, when you go through life like yeah. that, you're going to learn so yes. much and you're going to have such an enriched brain. And so you live an inspired life. Exactly. And you also work with great musicians that inspire you. The thing about, I'm not saying, all, I mean, yeah, rock music's great and you can be in a band where there's some great players. But when you're tested every day and you've got to think on your feet and people say, can you do this or can you do that? And you jam it or you, you just, you, you know, that's when you realize what great musicianship there is around in your fellow musicians. I've done some great gigs in that. I played Bahrain uh, New Year's Eve, I think it was 1999. And we stayed, it was a five-piece band. We each had our own room. Each room was $1,000 US a night. We didn't ask for that. That's how what the hotel was. And, you know, and we, we did. I did the Cannes Film Festival three times um, with the band where we just go over and you fly over and you play for the festival. But you actually spend three days in Cannes and you're in a hotel. And... It, and you've that and experience and, 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 just yeah, to... It's, it, you're going somewhere else. I mean, one we went one year and we hired a car and went to, I think we went into Italy for the day. We had a meal and came back from Nice or something like that. So you do fun things. It's not all, you don't have to be a rock star to enjoy lots of things along the way. So that was great. 
And then I had a, I was in an original band, a local. Um, I'm going to I'm going to talk to you about my education stuff in a bit, but I just want to finish this part off. I was in a band with a bunch of guys who were all still good friends of mine. Everybody was a great player, and we tried to do some original stuff for a couple of years. And although we did write some good stuff and we did the odd gig. We couldn't do that many because someone was always doing something else or was away, which is what happened in the world of professional musicians. So it didn't collapse so much as it kind of petered out a bit. And we still meet up now and again on odd gigs. But the guy who managed it, with whom I had a great relationship, I met him only in the early 90s, introduced to me. Um, sadly, he's passed on now. Um, a guy called Keith Ferguson, fantastic guy. And we got on like a house on fire. And when the band kind of fizzled, I said, Keith, will you manage me? And he said, sure, what are you going to, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to sing Calypso, but I'm not singing anything by Ari Belafonte. I'm not putting on a brightly coloured shirt. I'm not standing in the lobby of the Hilton Hotel and singing anything, you know, like Deo. All right, what are you going to do then? He said, I'm going to sing political and social aware stuff. And I'm going to have a oh, protest, protest singer. And the reason I'm a protest singer is that when I was something like 13 or 14, I bought the album Bob Dylan. And then the second album was Another Side of Bob Dylan. And then I heard a song called The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, which is about a, a black serving girl who works on a plantation for a master. It's a tobacco, tobacco plantation. The master comes in and he asks for some tea or asks for something or other, and she's not quick enough getting it. So he strikes her with his silver-capped uh, silver cane and kills her, he is then tried out of state, in another state, by three judges who declare him guilty and give him six months in prison. And he spends the six months in oh, absolute luxury, doing anything he wants and whatever he likes, no punishment at all. And the sheer injustice of this enraged this 13-year-old boy. It was but a step to the great John Lennon, give peace a chance, instant karma, all that, you know, and I was hooked on it. Add that, add to that, Marley, get up, stand up, you know, and you had uh, a died in the wool protest singer, and that was me. And Calypso gives me the chance to do that without sounding stupid or even without sounding uh, rabid about it. It just tells the facts, and I've done that. Bush, you focus, you this is your current focus now is yeah, Calypso. Calypso. This is what and I've been how... doing since night. I started doing it around 1992. And by 93, I was doing it regularly. The first gig I ever did that was a proper gig. First of all, I did a few pubs for nothing just to check it out, see if people would receive it. And they did. And then Keith got me my first proper gig. And it was the Cambridge Folk Festival, which was fantastic. Because the Cambridge Folk Festival is full of people who listen to lyrics who like lyrics, they're a bit lefty, there's some hippies in there, great. They don't mind listening to Calypso, as long as it's not something silly, as long as it's not about Coca-Cola on the beaches and everything and bikinis and swimming. No, it's about all sorts of things to which they, which they relate to and also which they might agree with. So I was on my way. And then at a certain point, we formed a, a full-size band with, I think it was 10 of us, and we did a few tours, which were lovely in the late 90s. Um, and in fact, one of those was a gig in Canterbury for a guy called Tom Andrews. Okay. And we did the gig. We had a very, very nice, um, uh, we were top of the bill there for a, this small festival. And the guy got in touch a couple of months later, Tom, when he said, Alex, I'm going to start an agency. I want to put artists such as yourself who are experts in a particular field into schools teaching their culture and i said great so he had the great um dr h Patton, who's from jamaica who used to tour with miss lou louise bennett the famous folk singer he's a he's also a choreographer okay. he knows about traditional dancing in the caribbean um there are people like south indian dancing classical kathak dancing um the black voices the five piece of quintet of African or Caribbean girl singers who tour the world singing gospel and all sorts. These are the kinds of people. So he said, I've got no money to pay you, Alex. I'm trying it out as an idea. I can pay you petrol. It's all going to be in Kent. And I live in West London. What do you think? And I said, let's give it a go. And he, he did the same thing with a few others. And it, it's, it absolutely 
was a great success because we've oh, done it's great. wonderful i've done i have done workshops with thousands and thousands of kids it's been 23 years now i've been doing it and i've been you know from from as far up as cumbria down to well certainly the the, the south coast kent different parts of the world um so really all all, all over. over but you told me a really interesting story before we recorded this interview mm -hmm. and it was connected to a video that's actually up on youtube and i link it into the description sure. below here on the podcast about this school you went into the school recorded you doing a workshop right. with kids yes and the topic was bullying but the way you did it i thought was so impactful because you really gave what i would say you championed the underdog yes. which meant the quiet well, kid in the class it. yeah that's which can be hard to yes, do yes i agree with you i agree um, that is that's a good video of my methodology, which is I'm doing workshops in schools and I am getting children to use their creativity to collectively create a song. And the song can be about any topic that's either chosen by the school or chosen by the children. And all I do is facilitate. And when that video, the topic was bullying. The school had an issue with bullying and said, could you do some work? I actually did two that day, but the one you see is one, one class, a year four class and a year five class. And they didn't know what they were going to get. Um, the, they had to create from scratch the whole song. Their ideas fed into the song. I told them that I was a human computer and that if they asked me a question, I could only give instructions like a manual. So don't say to me, I like going to the park on Saturday. What can we get to rhyme with that? And I say, well, what's the last word? And they say Saturday. And I say, well, you need to rhyme the last syllable, which is the day part. Well, give us a word, sir. No, I can't. Why not? Because I'm not human. I'm just a human computer. I can't think. If I could think of a word, I'd give it to you, but I can't. I can tell you how to find a word, and that is go through the alphabet from the beginning and write down all the words that have that sound. So the first sound is A, because you're trying to rhyme with the word day, and the second sound is bay, the third one is clay, the fourth one is day, but you've already used it, and you keep going. Flay, gray, gay, and then you've got J, lay, may, nay, and you so on, pay. And then two syllables, um, delay, obey, and so on. It doesn't matter about the spelling, it's in the sound. And so, that way, the students go through a process of writing down in a systematic way what can happen. And they pick, they may think the word, oh, okay, the word stays. Fine. We're going to use the word stay. Have you been through everything? No. Well, why not? Well, we just, we thought, we, okay, if you want to use the word stay, that's fine. If it fits the sentence, great. But supposing you find a word that you think's better, and they go through and say, what about the word astray? Oh, that's a good word. Yeah, it's not often used, is it? Going astray. So all of a sudden, I've given them an option to find a different word that rhymes with day that might produce a more interesting sentence within the rhyme scheme of the rhyming couplet. And who knows where we go. And that's the methodology. And they put it all together. And in that video, you can see them very tentative at the beginning. And as it moves on, and I use a mixture of... Um, I don't soft speak... I don't speak quite... I say... What do you mean you can't think of that? Well, I, they thought of it, and I look at another group. So I speak to them in the way they probably, certainly might speak to one another in the playground. Well, you could do that. Yeah, I know you. I've seen you do it before, Tommy. That sort of thing. So that they, and I let them call me Alex. I do not want to be the teacher. I only want to be the facilitator. And I keep on cajoling and nitpicking away, but I won't give them a tune. I say, somebody sing this. Okay, sing, we like going to the park on Saturday. Uh, I don't do that in the, but just for argument's sake. And they say, hands go up, say, and I say, no, you're speaking. Next one, you try. No, you're speaking. Next one, try. What am I, why do I have to keep saying you're speaking? And then somebody, and usually it's a quiet, shy person, could be boy or girl, says, well, please, because um, they're just speaking it, aren't they? Why do, what did you, and I've asked them to what? I've asked them to sing it. Can you sing it? Yeah, I think. Okay, what do you sing? We're going to the park on Saturday. Ooh, that's a good bit of tune. Anybody else want? We are going to the park on Saturday. All right, which one of those do you like? And the children make the decisions. Oh, we like the first one. It's got a bit of tune. And so at no point do I make a judgment. 
unless it's going terribly slowly. And bit by bit, they sew this fabric of a song together through their own suggestions. And each group starts with just a couplet. And then we've gone round the class, and it's, it's, it's kinetic, because it's A, B, C, D, E. So it travels around the class, as you'll see on the, on the video if you look at it. And then say, okay, you've done, how about another one? Then we'll have four lines. And you keep on pushing and pushing until you get something. And you'd be amazed. What's, to... what's so beautiful about yeah. it is you're really positioning the children in a non-judgmental, yes. non-critical yeah. atmosphere. You're removing this idea of boundaries within certain mm -hmm. degrees. I mean, they can't use bad language. But the underdog gets a voice. Oh, without a doubt. And you know what? That's, to me the big thing here and i like wow yeah. and i mean you can bring that into adults i mean you were telling me before this interview that you work with elders yes. who suffer from memory yes. issues because you have your experience with your yes. mom in that regard which is so Alzheimer's, sad and so yeah i've been asked to do oh, memory it's terrible the alzheimer's yeah i've had i've had uh, been asked to do what i call memory cafes in a couple of boroughs where you go in for an hour over lunch period uh, and people are there with their carers and we try and do a little bit of singing along. It could just be singing, you know, at Christmas time you sing carols and things. But then I might suggest writing our own. And it has very, you know, if you get eight lines, four rhyming couplets out of a group of people who normally are not asked to suggest ideas to make something new, that is an awful lot of eight lines is a heck of a, an achievement. And they feel it and they're told, you've just written this. You thought about this. I'm very happy to use well-known tunes for those if that's what it takes. It's the process of them making suggestions. It's empowering. It's, empower it's, it's, it's very exactly. empowering. It empowers them to say, wow, we did this. And I've done lots of projects like that. I've done a wonderful project with Watford, um, a group of elders, who it was so good that it was done with Watford Palace Theatre and they put a little show on where they create, and I work with them over about, uh, I think it's about over 12 weeks with half a dozen quite long workshops, like two hours at a time. And we came up with three songs that they wrote and a short little play. And the play was about, guess what? Seeking accommodation and being turned away. You know, something that was an a shared experience and they wanted, they wanted to express it. I wasn't going to block them. No, let's say what you want to say. And it was, and then they put it on. And I think we had 600 people come to the theatre to watch it, all put on by this one elders group. It's such a great piece. You know, it's wonderful work. It's satisfying. You know, through, yeah, but, you know, through COVID, I had the experience of being in a nursing home earlier this oh. year um, related to a family member. And I just found it so, so difficult to look at these people with such rich experiences in their own lives, just being positioned in a corner room and no voice. Exactly. Literally no exactly. voice. And that's hard to look at. It is. Because when you look at tribal communities, for example, the Native Americans or, you know, way beyond that over in Africa, wherever, it, the elders are viewed as a very, very important sure. part of society sure. to pass on whatever knowledge they have down to the younger generation to keep, you know, their tribe intact to keep life intact, to keep the meaning of life intact. Exactly. So, I mean, what it's carnage to have people in nursing homes. I know there are situations there that, you know, what can you do? You might be able to look after an Alzheimer's family member because it can be quite challenging. But it's so, so sad. Well, it is. And it's, funny, no you, it's funny you should raise that because, well, let's say we're a large family. I had an uncle who was a couple of years older than my mum. He also had a family of four. We were a family of five. But um, they within six months of diagnosis of his alzheimer's they put him into the home and he wasn't completely gone he had moments of lucidity where he'd say to his daughters what have you done to me now we without any discussion at all immediately said right not because we knew about that we didn't even know about that till after we decided ah, when my father died um my mother lasted eight years longer than my dad's so when my father died we had to take over and, and there was a, a younger, her 17 years younger sister, one of our aunts who didn't ever get married, have kids, also lived with them. So we did a roster, a rotor system where we, somebody stayed over every night. We had a rotor for shopping. We had a rotor for taking mum to the day centre now and again or the lunch clubs and stuff like that. And it ran until nine months before her death when she couldn't walk anymore. She had a fall. She was a large woman, big woman. 
and for mobility purposes, she moved into a convent, which was lovely and looked after her beautifully. But what I'm saying is, we were really pleased that we took it upon ourselves to keep her out of it, because whatever, she was just around at home. You know, home was home. Well, how she recognised it, it was what it was. And, you know, we all did a bit of a job. You know, everybody pulled their weight. Yeah, but you're left in with no regrets, no really, regrets. which is no, the most important thing. No regrets. You've done it the best that yeah. you can. Well, all I can say, Alex, you I could stay talking to you for another hour. You've so much to say. You've so much to say and so musical experiences and so on. And you know something? I think we'll have you back because I feel that this interview should be a part one interview. Fair enough. It's not finished. Yeah. And um, we'll have you back for a part two for sure. sure. And um, we'll spend more time speaking about what you know about music and just about your whole life experience because it's from people like you that are change makers in society. We need to hear more of this. Thanks. And one thing I'd love yeah. and one thing I'd love to learn more about is this whole idea of protest songs, because I think society now needs kind of this kind of tone for things yeah. to change. There's a lot of issues in society to be addressed. And one way music has proven in the past to be very motivation based. Mm -hmm. You go to the black American communities where music held them together in the civil rights yeah. era. And it was central in their churches and so forth, just keeping them together as a community. Well, I think nowadays we need similar. So, well, it's always been the there's so much always change. been the case in the Caribbean because Calypso is something of which the politicians are really scared. Really scared. In Trinidad, I, they don't do it so much now, but certainly back in the um, in the 90s and, and even before then, once it come a couple of weeks before carnival time, which is always February, March, following the church calendar, the newspapers start publishing what the Calypsonians are saying about the politicians and the politicians get really shirty about it because they'll do front page about, you know, this but gypsy sang this or so-and-so sang that. And they've always commented... Uh, there's always been a sort of, for a hundred years, there's been this relationship. It's a kind of love-hate because the Calypsonians can be used to instruct the people as well. And the mighty Sparrow, who's the most famous of all, known as the Calypso King of the World, he will write songs having a real go. And at the same time, uh, Eric Williams, who was the first Prime Minister of Trinidad back in the late 50s and 60s, he asked Sparrow, when they brought in the PAYE, tax system which nobody knew they just got their money in the hand he had real problems with people not agreeing to pay it so he asked sparrow to write a song about it. he wrote a song called p-a-y-p-a-y-e and it, i'll just do a little bit of it it says um and he was known as dr eric williams so the doctor say to pay as you earn and sparrow say you pay in to learn my father say he shot me the axe for when the collector come to chip off the income tax. Now that's the first chorus. He does three more like that. This is just the choruses. I can't, there's no time to do the whole song. The last chorus yes, is, yeah. Doctor say to pay as you earn and Sparrow say you pay in to learn. My father say he sh no, my father say he's selling the axe for when the collector come to chip off the income tax. Almost forgot the punchline. So he's selling the axe. So he gets to, and in the verses, he explains that the money that's accrued from the PAYE will give children books in school, will open, you know, playgrounds and will provide swimming lessons and so on. And then bit by bit. So it's a case of where the government, an astute, astute prime minister, realises instead of having enemies, why don't we get these people everybody thinks such a lot of to give a message for across? And that's where they use. So that's just one example where they may use an icon to do that. Well, Alex, we're definitely. Do you know something? We're definitely going to have a part two. We're definitely going to have a part two, and we'll do it soon. Queen of England has met with Nelson Mandela They shook hands together To signify there's a change in the weather This man spent a third of his life in a cellar With stale food and water While South Africa was a welter of slaughter Nelson, 
When you came before They make you stand by the door Now that you have come so far They are treating you like a star But Nelson, with all that they do There is no bitterness in you You keep your faith with who you are Kosi Sikileli Africa Amala Mandela Kosi Sikileli Africa Amala Mandela Kosi Sikileli Africa Amala Mandela Kosi Sikileli Africa Apartheid had torn the fabric of life asunder It couldn't last much longer With all the factions fighting to see who is stronger They then realized they'd made a blunder They at the end of their tether People of Soweto, you could sew it together Nelson, when you came before They all make you stand by the door Now that you have come so far Well, they're treating you like a star But Nelson, with all that they do There is no bitterness in you You keep your faith with who you are Kosi Sikileli Africa Amala Mandela Kosi Sikileli Africa Amala Mandela Kosi Sikileli Africa Amala The Sharpeville massacre caught the whole world's attention Madiba's decision Was to fight injustice and racial division One rainbow nation was his main intention The dream's just beginning If we meet the challenge, we bound to be winning. Nelson, when you came before, you know they make you stand by the door. Now that you have come so far, well, they treated you like a star. But Nelson, with all that they do, there is no bitterness in you. You keep your faith with who you are. Kosi Sikilele Africa, Amala Mandela. Kosi Sikilele Africa, Amala Mandela. Kosi Sikilele Africa, Amala Mandela. Kosi Sikilele Africa. He plumbed the depths of despair, but conquered the feeling with all their deceiving. He just sat it out and kept right on believing South Africa's time would soon come for healing And more than any other People think of him as a friend and a brother Nelson, when you came before They all make you stand by the door But now that you have come so far Everyone treating you like a star But Nelson, with all that they do There is no bitterness in you. You keep your faith with who you are. Kosi Sikilele Africa. Amala Mandela. 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 Nkosi Sikilele Africa Amala Mandela 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 Nkosi Sikilele Africa